We continue our series on the book of Revelation. And the reason we're doing the book of Revelation is because Advent is coming. In two Sundays, we will be beginning the season of Advent and our season of preparation as we prepare ourselves to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Christ child on Christmas Day. But Advent, historically, is not just a season of preparation for Christmas, although it is that. It is also a season of preparation for the Lord's second coming, for his second Advent. And we discussed last week how there are two meanings to the word end, as we have it in English. And it's important to distinguish between these two meanings when we come to the book of Revelation, which is arguably one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand and unpack because of its very vibrant and horrifying at times imagery. And it's precisely because of these very vivid metaphors and imagery that John is using because they help to convey the importance of the message. When you are presented with something very vivid and very memorable, it's hard to forget. But it can be lost, the message. The good news of Revelation can be lost through the forest of these fantastic meta uh, metaphors and images. So it's important to stop and reflect, as I said at the outset, on the two meanings of the word end. The first meaning of the word end is like the end, the termination, the cessation, when something is done. But there's a second meaning to the word end. And this second meaning is what's more important in the book of Revelation. It's end in terms of a goal. A telos is the Greek word. What it's working toward, right? Something that is coming to completion. What is the thing that stands there as the end? The thing to which we are moving toward. The goal that we are striving to achieve. And as I said, this second meaning of end is what is primary for John's message in Revelation. Because as we um, went through last week, when John meets Jesus in this revelation, in this vision, he doesn't meet Jesus as he knew Jesus on earth. He didn't know Jesus as the ways portrayed here in our stained glass, in his human form, you could say. Although Jesus is always fully human and fully God, the way that John meets Jesus in Revelation is Jesus as he is in the fullness of his heavenly glory. So much so that John initially doesn't even recognize Jesus. But Jesus stands at the center of the book of Revelation. He stands at the center as its meaning, as its purpose, as its goal. He is the one to whom all things are moving toward. He is the goal of all human history, its fulfillment, its end. And so we have to remember as we dive deeper into the book of Revelation that Jesus stands at the center. He is the meaning of the book as a whole. So that we don't get lost, as I said, in those very, um, those fantastic metaphors and symbols, which are important to the book, but they're secondary in terms of the overall meaning of the book as a whole. And so it's important to remember that Revelation is what we could call a revealed mystery. It is revealing, it is revelation, right? That's what the word revelation means, to, re to reveal. 
And quite literally, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypse. An apocalypse is an unveiling. It's a showing of something that was previously hidden and now is shown in the fullness. Right? We can think of the Eucharist as an apocalypse. The item is veiled right now, and then later the priest will take it off, and it's unveiled. It's an apocalypse. What was hidden, I mean, we know what's under it. It's a chalice and a patent and a piece of bread. But we see it in the full reality of what it is. And that's what John is seeing. He is being revealed to him the, the full goal and end of human history, of indeed the whole cosmic history, is being unveiled in Jesus Christ. So this revealed mystery is shown to us through John. John doesn't get this message, this revelation, just for him. It's not a personal, private thing. It is meant to be read and to be heard by the church Catholic, the church as it exists in time and space. But this revelation still remains shrouded in mystery. It's unveiled, but it's still a book, a message that gives us pause, it perplexes us and confuse us. Because how can any of us as humans understand the fullness of God's plan? It's easy for us when we in our own lives face frustration and suffering and confusion to throw our, up, our hands up and to say, well clearly God doesn't care for me or clearly there is no God. But that's a very limited human perspective, usually very focused on myself and my own selfishness. So John here is revealed the whole, the whole scope of time and space. So how could he, let alone us, understand the fullness of what's being revealed, this great mystery who stands before him? And yet, this revelation is something that we are called to ponder and to contemplate, because what it reveals is what is truly real, the way things are the way things will be as they move toward Jesus Christ. See, we live in a period and a time in our world of irreality. And by irreality, I mean things that are not even sem a semblance of what is actual and what is real. An we live in an image-based world where images can confuse and confound us and lead us astray. But John is being revealed the, th the way things really are. And the book of Revelation takes this eternal perspective. But how can we as humans, who are rooted in time and space, it is 1102 on Sunday, November the 13th, and we are here at St. James Paris, and so any of, unless any of us can bilocate, which means be in two places at the same time, and unless any of us can be in two different times at the same time, we are bound in the here and now. So how can we understand the revelation of all eternity? Well, God understands this about us. He is the God that made us after all. And so despite this unveiling of the full eternity of who God is and God's end and plan for humankind, for all of human history, for all of not just humans, but of the whole cosmos, we see God coming again to make himself understood in the same way as in his incarnation when he became human and lived in a particular time and place. We see this message of revelation given to John to speak to a particular time and a particular place. 
which leads us to our reading for today. The reading for today is kind of an amalgamation of chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and I want to commend those to your reading at home to, to read through the entirety of all those letters. They are seven letters that John is instructed to write to the seven churches. And uh, we've got a map of the seven churches, so we can just kind of review geographically. So if you look on the bottom left of the screen, that's where Patmos, that's the island where John is exiled to. That's the place where he receives this revelation from God. And those red markers indicate the cities where the churches are located to which John has been instructed to write these seven letters. And these letters are not John's words. They are John's writ they're, they're words that have been given to John for John to write down. John is the medium for the God's message that is going to go to these seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey. You can kind of see how they're geographically fairly tight. And you may be wondering, what's the significance of these seven churches? What about the church in Antioch or the church in Jerusalem? or the church in Ethiopia, and the, all the other places where we know there are churches, the church in Rome, the church in Greece. Well, as you may have figured out, numbers are very significant in the book of Revelation. And how many churches there are there? Seven. What is seven a number of? Seven is the number of wholeness, it's the number of completion, it's the number of covenant. So here we have seven churches symbolically representing the entire church. Not just the entire church as it exists in that time and in that place, but also the seven churches represent the entire church as it exists in this time and in this place. So these seven churches could easily be to the seven churches in Paris, Burford, St. George, Brantford, etc., etc. We are meant to hear them not just as messages or letters written to those churches in those time and place, but also to us here and now. That's the power of God's Word. It's not bound just to a particular time and place. It is an eternal Word that continues to speak. So as we dive into these letters... It's important to remember that they are not just written to those people, they are written to us as well. And John is instructed to write to the angels of the churches. And you may be thinking, well, how does that exactly work? What do you, how does an angel receive a letter? Right? Angels are purely spiritual beings. They don't have bodies the way we have bodies. They have spiritual bodies, but not physical bodies. So how could they receive um, the equivalent of early turkey mail? Well, they can't. But John here is indicating a particular role. So we have angels in their literal sense of, as spiritual beings created by God. But we also have the literal meaning of the word angel, which means messenger. So John is being instructed to write to the messengers the angels of these seven churches. And angel here means bishop. John has been told to write to the bishops of these seven churches, here is what each of these bishops need to hear. And because the bishops need to hear it, the people need to hear it too in those cities. 
And of the seven letters that John is instructed to write, two of the letters are encouraging and positive. There's no sense of any wrongdoing or anything that needs to be corrected. But the other five indicate that there are some big problems. So for the first letter to Ephesus, John is told to write to acknowledge the great administrative skill that the church in Ephesus has. They are good at putting a plan together. They are good at following a plan. They are good at sticking to it. Their bishop is a visionary in this way. But, says John, they have no love. They've forgotten their first love. They become so fixated on the administrative aspect, they've forgotten the relational aspect. The relational aspect of love toward God and neighbor as first and foremost. To the church in Pergamum, John is told to write to them that they are too compromising. The bishop is too timid. He's allowed culture to influence too much the message of the church. Instead of seeing the gospel as a message that cannot be compromised or brokered with the powers of the age. But the bishop has somehow allowed too much compromise into the church. To the church in Thyatira, John is told to write them to let them know that too much false teaching, too much nonsense has been allowed to be taught in the churches. The bishop of Thyatira is seen as a pushover. He doesn't want to defend the apostolic faith to say, no, this is not what the church teaches. The church teaches these things, and these things are not according to the apostolic teaching. To the bishop in Sardis, John is told to write that the bishop has gotten too caught up in the glory of the role of being bishop. So much so that he's become a false shepherd. The job of a shepherd is to lead the people. So here is someone in Sardis who has bought his own press, who is caught up with the role of meeting with the, you know, the power brokers of the age, of being someone who's influential but forgets to lead his own people in the way of following Jesus Christ. And to the church in Laodicea, John is told to write that they are too rich. They have so much money, they are so focused on their bottom line that they are spiritually bankrupt. It's good to have money in the bank, it's good to be able to pay the bills, but when you are too focused on these things, you forget that you are blessed to be a blessing, that what God has given you is meant to be used in the service of others. And so these five churches are wanting. They haven't followed exactly what they are being instructed to do. And remember, John is writing this within the first century, right? Like this is not like decades and centuries of bad practices and habits accruing over the life of the church that need to be corrected. This is already in the first generation of the church that John is instructed to clarify and to be clear what we're all about as a church. And the letters all start or mention four words. I know your works. The I is not John. The I is Jesus Christ. I know your works. By the tree you will know it by its fruit. A church you will know it by its works. And so the message to these five churches is it doesn't matter how well you administrate and manage finances. It doesn't how well matter how well you are good at promoting social causes. 
These things don't matter when your love of Christ is not the first thing that matters, when it is not the priority. Remember, when John meets Jesus, Jesus stands as the center and the meaning of the book of Revelation. And the purpose of these letters to these churches is to say, wake up, wake up. You have forgotten to put Jesus at the center of what you do and you've become too fixated on secondary issues. And so because these seven churches represent all churches, it is important for us to reflect on these letters and how they might apply to us in our situation as St. James Anglican Church in Paris, Ontario. Now, it's easy for us to assume that we must be those two good churches, Philadelphia and, uh, what's the second one? What's the other one, sorry? Smyrna. Smyrna, right? Those are the good ones. Yeah, we're the good guys. Like, that's, that's good. The questions these letters ask are not always the definite answers for all times and all places, right? There would be a time when Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira would be like Sardis and Philadelphia. But John is asking them to, uh, to reflect on these questions at that time and moment. And he's asking us as we read these things to reflect in this time and this moment, as a church and as individuals, where is your love? Have we become too timid and compromising? Have we allowed too much false teaching? Are we following false shepherds? Have we become too worldly rich that we are no spiritually good? Difficult questions, but questions that get to the heart of what we are as Christians and what we are as a Christian community. I don't know the answers to these questions, but they're questions that invite, as I said, that reflection. Where is our love? Where is our gospel-centeredness? Where is our understanding of who we are as a church? All important questions to ask in all seasons of life and in all seasons of the church. So the message to us is the same message as it was then. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Hear what the Spirit is saying to St. James Paris. Hear what the Spirit is saying to you, to me. Let us have ears to hear. Thanks be to God.